0: It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. You're tuned into Christian Questions. Join the conversation now, on air or online at ChristianQuestions.com and download our app by searching for Christian Questions Radio. Here's Rick and Jonathan.
1: Albert Einstein once said, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's Incomprehensible. Good morning, I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary
2: as we look at Bible related topics from a different perspective. And I'm Jonathan, and that different perspective has its basis in three things godly principles, family values, honest dialogue, always done in a politically free zone. Folks, thanks for joining us today. This is a call in format and we
1: are caller friendly. So, Jonathan, let's get started. It's good to be back. Yes, it is. (laughs) We had a few technical issues last week. We're not able to broadcast and boy, I
2: felt lost (laughs) without doing the broadcast. Doing the program for 18 years, that was a very unique experience. It's like,
1: what is going on here? No! <laughs> but anyway, we're back. What's our subject? What's happening?
2: Well, Rick, our question is, does science show the existence of a creator? And our theme text is found in Psalms, chapter 19, verse 4. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. So the question,
1: does science show the existence of a creator? Uh, For that subject, we have brought in a very special guest, our very special guest and dear friend, David Stein. Good morning, David.
3: Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Jonathan. And good
1: morning, Fred. Good to have you here this morning. We, folks... We have got a conversation for you today that is going to. It's just going to. If you're wearing socks, it's going to knock them right off. I'll tell you that. So let's get started with this, and we'll or we'll, slippers. It might, might knock your slippers off. <laughs> you never know. Uh, let's get get started. Let's put this in perspective. You know. Materialism. Materialism. This is, uh, materialism is a, is a philosophy that permeates much of the world today. And we're very, very overly familiar with it. It is the belief that physical stuff underlies everything real and it rejects any supernatural forces as having influence in our world. It teaches that the universe came into existence all on its own, without any intelligence or design behind it, and that it has proceeded randomly since. Further, Materialism claimed that there is no natural moral code and this accidental universe uh, in this accidental universe other than what man comes up with. Thus, there is no reason why we're here, and no hope beyond death. The material world is all there is and is all that there will be. So related to this concept is is the concept of scientism, which is the belief that science is the only reliable source of truth. So the question is, is this true? Is science the only source of truth? Does science really validate godlessness, or does science show something else entirely? Folks, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. This is going to be fascinating, and if you have friends of yours who are perhaps atheist or do not uh, appreciate the the idea of of, of a creator. Get them to tune in this morning. We welcome their input as we talk about the universe and a lot, of, a lot of things that, that are so far above me, Jonathan. That man, it's just, it's just cool to have somebody here who knows how to talk about it. This is exciting. <laughs> all right, so, so David, first of all, let's get started. Who are you? What, what are you doing here? What's happening? <laughs> well, I ask
3: myself that all the time. Rick. <laughs> no, no, I um. I live in uh, in Pennsylvania. I'm an elder in the Allentown, Pennsylvania, uh, Bible Student uh, Church, and um, my background is is technical background. I have a degree in engineering. Uh, I'm not a scientist, so from that standpoint, I am a layman. However, this is a subject that has been of interest to me uh, since I was in my teens. And there is so much available out there that is written for the layman today that takes uh, some really heavy scientific terms. And we're going to try and keep it uh, on that level today uh, that uh, just validates faith. And, and that's the thing. Materialism and scientism today are one of the enemies of Christian faith because they want to tell you that your faith in God and your belief in Scripture as a source of truth is mere superstition.
1: And what they're, so what they're saying is science is telling us this. Well, they're, they're using science as the backdrop for telling you
3: to drop your faith. Yeah, and, and when, I, when I say science, I want to talk about the component of people that are saying it. You will find many scientists who are believers in God. And many of them are believers because of some of the stuff we're going to talk about today. In fact, if you talk to cosmologists and astronomers, a far greater percentage of those believe in God, what we'd call theists, not mm-hmm. necessarily Christians right. or or uh, religious in a churchianity kind of way, but rather saying we can't deny there was a designer. Now, if you go into another scientific discipline like biology, well, you know what peer pressure is, yes. right? Yes. Well, there's a peer pressure in biology that is materialistic and as for scientism. And you can if you start to express beliefs that God created things and you're a biologist, your career may be in trouble. So there's a high a lot a lot larger proportion of biologists that perhaps wouldn't buy this. But again, that's not true of all scientists.
1: Okay. And there's a lot to go through. And folks, now listen, listen we've got a very special treat for you this morning as we go through the program. If you're able, go to your computer. Get on the web, go to christianquestions.com. You're going to see the the big, big picture as you go onto the front page with the title, Does Science Show the Existence of a Creator? If you click on that, Does Science Show the Existence of a Creator? You're going to go to the program page. And when you go to the program page, just scroll down a little bit and click on where it says CQ Rewind Summary. And there will be about a 15 or 18-page document With a lot of the scientific background that we're going to be talking about this morning. So you can actually follow along by reading some of the things we actually won't even be able to get into as we discuss it. So again, ChristianQuestions.com, click on the program page, scroll down to Seek Your Rewind Summary, and uh, join the conversation with us as you follow along.
3: You know, Rick, this is real unusual. Uh, you, you and I and Jonathan, you prepare a program sheet every week. Mm-hmm. Now the audience can see basically what that is and right. follow us point by point.
1: So do that if you can and, and follow along. So, David, let's just dive into this thing. Uh, how, how probable more likely is human life in the universe? What is the probability? There's something called the Drake equation. What what is that?
3: Well, very good, Rick. Uh, Some time ago, uh, back in the 50s and 60s, scientists were asking this question, Uh, especially as a knowledge of the universe began to increase. Are we the only ones in the universe that have intelligence and have a culture and a civilization and whatnot? And so, uh, uh, Professor Drake uh, came up with an equation to estimate how many uh, civilizations, and we're talking about human-like advanced civilizations, there are in the universe. And so this equation came up, and again, in 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 a, in CQ you can see all the elements mm-hmm. of that equation. We won't go into that here. The bottom line is what he found out, or at least what they calculated. All right now, this is back in 1961 when he did 1961. this. 1961. Okay, this exactly, exactly. Right. Ahead. So this is old news, right. in essence. But what he came up with, he said, well, based upon my equation, there are 10,000 civilizations, uh, intelligent civilizations, in our galaxy, in Milky Way galaxy. Okay, so just in this galaxy, not in the universe, in the galaxy. Yeah. Okay. And the important point here about bringing this equation up is basically he said, well, life is common. You know, it, it's everywhere. You know, there's, there's nothing speci- especially unique about us. But uh, there should be many civilizations out there. So okay. that was the teaching then.
1: All right. So that's this Drake equation, 1961, the estimation. 10,000 uh, places you could have human-like life within our own galaxy. Yeah,
3: Can you imagine 10,000 Christian questions around the galaxy? <laughs> <going on?
1: laughs> I have a hard time working with one. So, So life on Earth then becomes just a matter of, Commonality, kind of, kind of kind of luck, and it's interesting. There's a scripture that sort of alludes to that. And, and Jonathan, let's read this just from the New World Translation for this, because of, of time constraints. We're going to be looking at Isaiah
2: sixty-five eleven. But you are among those forsaking Jehovah, those forgetting my holy mountain, those setting a table for the God of good luck, and those filling up cups of mixed wine for the God of destiny. And that really sounds like that idea of... It's it's all
1: happens by chance, by happenstance.
3: I, exactly, and of course, that's as you read the definitions of materialism and scientism. That's one of the important things that that these are purely accidents. There was no other hand involved, and their bottom line is yeah, this: this is going to happen again and again and again. All right. So, with that in mind,
1: you know, we, you got to ask the question: Then, is there nothing special about life, about human life, about earthly life? And we were talking before the program about the. Copernican principle, uh, that uh, Earth was not the center of the solar system, it used to be believed that Earth was the center of everything, and Copernicus said, actually, no, it's not. So, so just tell me what trend that
3: started. Yeah, this is another example of a paradigm shift in human history. Uh, prior to Copernicus' discovery that Earth revolved around the sun, people believed that the Earth was the center of the universe. Right. It was a religious teaching that, that the church taught at that. Uh, and so when Copernicus was trying to figure out the, the, the movements of stars and planets, nothing would work. I mean, it, The math just got untenable. And finally, he, he put the sun in the center of the universe and had the earth revolve around, and all of a sudden everything makes sense. So that took away some specialness, at least from a, a religious perspective of the earth. Earth no longer the center of the universe. It's just one of several planets that, that go around the sun.
1: Okay, so and, and that actually began a, a trend in thinking, which we will develop as we go. Yes, yes. Okay, well, let's go to a soundbite, uh, because what this does is this gives rise to something called the principle of mediocrity. And this uh, soundbite is from the book, The Privileged Planet, and even the sound of it, the principle of mediocrity, is not exciting. No, it's <laughs> not. <laughs> All right, so let's listen to what, what this is.
4: Copernicus had laid the cornerstone for modern astronomy. Yet, 400 years after his discovery, the empirical fact that our planet was not the center of the solar system had evolved into what is now known as the Copernican Principle. The idea that the Earth occupies no preferred place
5: in the universe. Copernicus had a theoretical way of explaining the apparent motion of the planets across the sky. That's all it was. It wasn't a theory that told us whether or not Earth was special, or whether we played some importance in the scheme of things, or whether every place in the universe was the same as every other place. Nevertheless, this reinterpretation of Copernicus became prominent in the 20th century. It's often called the principle of mediocrity. This principle says that our location and our status are mediocre, they're unexceptional. As a result, we should not assume that we are in any way privileged, or that the universe was designed with us or beings like us in mind.
1: Okay. So, very quickly, David, what's the, what what happened from there, Fred? Get ready for the next soundbite. Yeah.
3: W- basically, what it is, it started to go from a, a scientific observation into a, a, a humanity humanities philosophy that you are not special. That there's nothing. Particularly interesting about either the Earth, its location in the Earth, or what's on it.
1: And the idea was popularized by Carl Sagan. Yes. Back in the 1980s in his TV series Cosmos. Yes. This uh, idea that things are just. Mediocre. It's just, it just sort of happenstance and get over yourself.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, In Cosmos, that was a very strong push, and you know that they've redone it. Uh, there's a new series that was out, came out, I think, last year, and that same uh, gospel of mediocrity has been preached on that.
1: And so we have a photo in, in, the, in the pre-wind, in, in the material, of, uh, of a band of planets, and there's this little tiny blue dot. That's the Earth.
3: Yeah, and that's where the the, uh, the name comes from for Carl Sagan's book, Pale Blue Dot. Uh, there was a, a satellite that they sent out that was far from Earth, so it turned its cameras back to Earth to take a picture of the Earth. And it just so happened that there's this shaft of light that is illuminating this little tiny dot, which is the Earth. And it seemed like... The shaft of life was saying, hey, this is something special. And so in in Pale Blue Dot, uh, what Carl Sagan says, you know, it's it's not really special. That's just an anomaly of optics.
1: Okay, let's go to the next soundbite from Privileged Planet about that Pale Blue Dot.
4: The Copernican Principle and the concept of the Earth's insignificance was popularized during the 1970s and 80s by the late astronomer Carl Sagan. In his best-selling book, Pale Blue Dot, Sagan wrote... Because of the reflection of sunlight, the Earth
0: seems to be sitting in a beam of light, as if there were some special significance to this small world. But it's just an accident of geometry and optics. Look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. Our postures, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark.
1: Now that's kind of depressing, <laughs> okay? So, so this is the materialistic view of the universe, that we are here without purpose or significance in the universe. There's nothing special about us, and there probably are thousands of planets with civilizations like us out there as well. So here we are, we're sitting here, and it's all mediocre.
2: Or is it? This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan, here with Rick, with our special guest, David Stein, and our subject... Does science show the existence of a creator? Coming up, what is the other side of the story? Could we be living in a privileged planet? That's next. You're listening to
0: Christian Questions. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com.
2: Here's Reagan and Jonathan. Welcome back. Our subject for today is, does science show the existence of a creator? We're live uh, Sunday mornings from 7 to 9 Eastern and 6 to 8 Central. That means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866 985 all or you can message us on your app and join us for podcasting Monday nights from 8 to 10 Eastern. And that will be live, and we will again have David Stein
1: with us this tomorrow night, 8 to 10. So if you got in the middle of this and you want to hear the whole thing live... Monday night 8 to 10 uh, podcast. Go to ChristianQuestions.com Click Listen Live and there you are. So let's get back into this. I- interesting. Several comments came in on Facebook about, about our, our conversation here. And one individual said um, you know, our question, does science show the existence of a creator? And the answer was no. The deity is a religious concept. Scientifically, it is not even interesting. And I would say scientifically... Hold on, and if you're listening, listen. Just give us the next hour and a half, and then you can go your merry way. But just listen, because I think you're going to find it far more interesting than you anticipate. So to get back into that, David, in 2004, Guillermo Gonzalez and Jay Richards wrote a book entitled The Privileged Planet, How Our Place in the Cosmos is Designed for Discovery. So what was that about? What's the theme of the book, and and, and why are we bringing it up here?
3: Well, uh Professor Gonzalez is an astronomer. I don't remember what Jay Richards' uh, uh, pursuit was, but both of these folks were talking about the Drake equation and saying that, gee, life should be common. And they asked the question, is that really true? Does science really show that? And so they began to collaborate to to look at factors uh, that are necessary for intelligent life to exist. And as they started putting these factors together, they started to realize, wow, the Earth isn't so common after all that all of these factors indicate that it is extremely special and that our niche in the universe is, is something that is very improbable. So they put the book together, and they listed many, many factors, much more factors than the Drake equation kind of glossed over, and looked at, well, this has to be true, this has to be true, this has to be true. And we're going to look at a few of these as we go All on right, the segment.
1: so let's go through some of the major factors. And there's a whole lot more. We are just literally scratching the yes, surface. Yes, that's okay. right. Okay, but uh, factors required for life. And first is water. Okay, yes. so there is... No life
3: without water. I mean, think about, you know, we, we think of water from a human standpoint. You know, you get thirsty, you drink water. But there could be no life without water. Water is, is called the universal solvent. And in the water in our cells provides the medium for all of the functions and processes of life to take place. Without water, you, you, you couldn't have it. Without water, you couldn't have the recycling of the earth, which we're going to talk about a little okay. bit, that brings materials and, and other things essential for life.
1: All right, so let's go to a soundbite from The Privileged Planet. It was a book and a video. Uh, and uh, again, it's going to be talking about water and its uh, relationship to life.
3: All the searches that are being done for life elsewhere, their starting position is a terrestrial class planet with water.
4: It is now widely recognized that the chemical properties of water are exquisitely suited for carbon-based life. These properties include water's ability to dissolve and transport the chemical nutrients vital to all living organisms and its unmatched capacity to absorb heat from the sun, a process critical for regulating the earth's surface temperature.
1: Okay, he, he mentioned in that uh, two very specific words that um, I think we, we want you to elaborate on. First of all, it talks about water being uh, the medium for transporting. Now, in, in terms of chemistry, what, what, is, what does that mean?
3: well you can 't have chemistry with at least life chemistry without water. All of the processes that take place in our cell require water for these chemical reactions to take place, like the energy in your body. It has to produce energy in some way there 's a chemical reaction in every cell that produces that that energy. So water is absolutely essential. There is no other known material in the universe. That can uh, drive life the way water can. Okay,
1: so it drives the the chemical reactions then yes. within our very cells. So water, and you know, somebody listening who doesn't believe in in e- intelligent design can say, "Well, you know, that happens to be a, a life force on just this particular planet." You can't tell me that water has to be somewhere, somewhere else. I'm just going to, I'm not going to ask you to read. I know you want to. He's like, well, wait, wait, I want to say something. No, not yet. <laughs> water also holds heat. It absorbs. That was another word that he used in, in the soundbite.
3: Yeah, very unusual property uh, of being able to, to hold a large amount of heat within water. And that heat capacity, you know, it's, it's like a storage uh, vessel, if you will. That allows the moderation of things on earth, the moderation of temperature, uh, and provides, again, that that le- living area, that the, exactly the right conditions in order for life to continue.
1: Okay, and then there's you have a, a note here about the polarization of a water molecule. Oh, this,
3: this Jonathan, we were talking
1: about this the other day. <laughs>
3: <it>? uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is, uh, Rick and Jonathan, this one is a really neat one. You know from your high school science that if you heat something, it gets larger, and if you cool something, it gets smaller. I remember that from high school (laughs) science. (laughs) It's kind of a universal concept. But guess what? When you cool water below its freezing point, it does not get smaller. It gets larger. Right, and ice cubes. Ice expands. Right. right? Right. That's why ice floats. But think if it wasn't that way. All, when, when, every time ice would be created, it would go to the bottom of the lake or the ocean, and then more and more would happen, and the earth would be frozen over. The fact that it gets larger and ice floats is part of this moderation. And by the way, this is all due to the fact, this, the idea of polarization. This is electrical polarization. There's, there's a, a slight a plus charge on one side of the molecule, and a slight minus charge on the other side of the molecule. And there's an angle between the uh, hydrogen and the oxygen. I think it's like 109 degrees that is that's what it has to be in order to have this unusual trait of expanding when it cools, and by the way, you get water down to a certain temperature, it starts to contract like everything else, but that early that early uh, range you know just below freezing and whatnot it's larger
1: and again, that is critical for the maintenance of life if it didn't
3: work that way, there would not be life
1: okay so that's one little aspect that we 're talking about let let's go to, to 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 another aspect then you know so only planets with water can have life, uh, and only the Earth in this solar system that we, has water
3: which produces life. Right. right. Okay. When, when you look at the planets in the solar system, none of the other planets has the abundance of water. Most of the other planets don't. The gas giants, they, they've got methane and, and the gases like that. They think there may be some water on Mars under the surface, but they can't, they can't see it. They can't track it. Uh, so Earth is very, very specific in its ability to have liquid water. We talked about ice and water, but liquid okay, water, that's there's the key element. All right, all right,
1: now. Another thing that has to do with this is, is, is the, the Earth's location. And there's something in, 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 in this book or in science that they call the Goldilocks Zone. Now, Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Now, what has that got to do with anything? Let's first go back to a soundbite from The Privileged Planet, the, the book and video. And then, David, let's look at the, what the Goldilocks Zone is.
6: A habitable planet lives in what we call the Goldilocks Zone. It's not too hot. It's not too cold; uh-huh. it's just right. And Got when I say it. just right, I mean just right for water. Liquid water really helps define the habitable
0: zone. If it's too hot, again, the water just boils away. You just can't get condensed water. It's too cold, as in Mars today, it freezes out.
1: Okay, and and folks, again, if you are following along uh, with the CQ pre-wind, you go to ChristianQuestions.com, dot com. Click on the uh, the t- t- uh, on the picture. Uh, of of our program for today, go to the program k- p- page, uh, scroll down, and click on CQ um, uh, Rewind Summary Edition. And there's a document there. Th- th- about the third page, there's a a picture talking about this habitable zone, which uh, David, you're saying is known as the Goldilocks. Uh, zone. What is that? What, what does it mean?
3: Well, remember, going back to, to what uh, Professor uh, Gonzalez and Richards wrote, they're looking at what factors are necessary in order for life to be. In order for life to be on Earth, it has to be in a certain zone. If it was a little bit closer to the sun, like Venus... Venus is, is 5% closer, that we would have a runaway uh, thermal effect, and there would be no liquid water. It would be all water vapor. If you're just a little bit further uh, away from the sun, again, out of this Goldilocks zone, it would be too cold, and you wouldn't have any liquid not water. Not too hot, again. not too cold, yeah, yeah, that's just right. right. So what's the probability? Uh, how many planets in the solar system can be in just the right position? You see, this is another factor right. by which you can calculate the probability of life.
1: Alright, so I'll bet Goldilocks never knew she was going to be scientific. That's all I got to say. So let's just go to a, a scripture that, that just coincidentally talks about water and its value. Revelation
2: 22.1 And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. So in
1: scripture, David, water is looked upon with great honor and respect.
3: Yes, and not only do we see, see that in the material world, but here in the spiritual world, in the spiritual uh, handling of it, water represents life, and it represents the truth that leads to life. You know, if you don't have the truth from a spiritual standpoint, then you're not ultimately not going to get life. Right.
1: Okay. Next point, and, and I keep cutting you off because we got an awful lot to cover, David, so forgive me for that. So, So water is... Absolutely majorly critical in terms of of life. What about the earth? What about the earth's crust? When you think about the earth's crust, it's between 4 and 30 miles thick. Now, four miles doesn't sound like a lot, and really, thirty miles, when you think about the the, the size of the Earth, doesn't sound like a lot.
3: Yeah, I mean, it, it's like the thin skin of an apple, you know, when you look at it in the size of the whole. That's Earth. kind of scary, actually. Yeah, <laughs> when you say it that way.
1: So, but, so, what what's the what what are the the parameters for susten- the sustenance of life by way of the Earth's
3: crust? Well, let's take a let's reason by looking at extremes. If the crust of the Earth was much thinner, now you know what a volcano is, right? right? And, And we don't have volcanoes popping up every day because the Earth's crust is too thick. But if it was thinner, because of the of the volcanic activity of the earth and the heat of the earth, you'd have volcanoes popping up all the time. Sure, that makes sense. And the more volcanoes you have, the more uh, disruption of the atmosphere that you have, and it 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 puts poisonous gases and whatnot. I don't know if you remember a few years ago, Mount Pinatubo, and yeah. uh, and they had like four feet of ash and whatnot. Yeah, Imagine yeah. that happening all over the globe, different places. That's if it was too thin. If it was too thick, then it would inhibit vo- volcanic activity, and it would also inhibit... Inhibit the way the crust moves around the earth Now scientists have a theory They call the plate tectonic theory it's, mm-hmm. it's a theory that's been mostly established pretty well by scientists But the crust of the earth move in different directions And some go down and some go up The ones that go down they recycle The ones that go up make mountains Now think about the importance of mountain manufacturing on earth Because a mountain comes up And it's filled with all of these minerals And, and carbon and other things That are necessary for life and then as they begin to erode, they bring these materials down into the uh, areas where they can produce food and vegetation and whatnot. So this this cycle of the crust uh, is absolutely necessary for life. You can't and, have life without it. And
1: if the crust was too thick, it wouldn't be happening. It wouldn't be happening. If it was too thin you'd have all kinds of disruptions with volcanic activity. So, again, Goldilocks yep. appears again. Not the, too thick, not too thin, just right.
3: You no, know, and you'll <laughs> see that theme in many, many of, of the constants and factors that we're looking at.
1: Okay, so... Now, did that just happen to be on this planet that happens to be in the, in that habitable zone that the earth, that the crust is just right? What about the magnetic field of the earth? Let's go to a third point. We've got water, we've got the earth's crust thickness, and now the magnetic field. Again, let's go to a sound bite. This is from, uh, the case for a creator, uh, uh read, and this is read by author Lee Strobel, uh, about earth's magnetic field
6: this radioactive decay also helps drive the convection of the liquid iron surrounding the Earth's core which results in an amazing phenomenon the creation of a dynamo that actually generates the planet's magnetic field the magnetic field is crucial to life on Earth because it shields us from low-energy cosmic rays if we didn't have a magnetic shield there would be more dangerous radiation reaching the surface Also, solar wind particles would directly interact with the upper atmosphere, stripping it away, especially the molecules of hydrogen and oxygen from water. That would be bad news because water would be lost more quickly.
1: Okay, so Earth's magnetic field... What role does it play in, in sorry, but in a few words
3: <laughs> it, it basically it protects us from from outside influences like the low level low energy cosmic rays that could kill us again, the question is what 's the likelihood of a planet in our galaxy having a magnetic field? It has to have a liquid core, it has to have radioactive elements that are keeping the heat and whatnot, and it 's got to have iron so all of those factors you put together. Again, it reduces the probability of there being inhabitable life on planets.
1: So it has to be just right to have that magnetic field be able to naturally exist.
3: Yeah, this is a case where it's black or white. You either got it or you don't, okay. and you need it.
1: Okay, all right. And then one last point for the segment, uh, David. Oxygen, nitrogen uh, in the atmosphere. Uh, we've talked about water and its necessity for life. What about oxygen and
3: nitrogen? The mix of gases in our atmosphere is just perfect for life. Uh, again in, in uh, pre-wine you can see what those percentages are if you had more oxygen, now we need oxygen to live so that's the primary one if you had more oxygen than was necessary then it would drive oxidation too fast and it would make it difficult to have the chemical reactions that you need to moderate in order for life and in fact you'd have fires all the time if you had too much oxygen fire would go out of control too little oxygen not enough for life and then you couldn't have fire and by the way just as a sub I think that the ability of man to have fire is one of the things that drives technological innovation. Without fire and without the oxygen, we could never have developed the technology that we have to learn these things. <laughs> That's crazy when you think about this.
1: So again, if you look at each thing individually, say, yeah, okay, that that could happen, that could happen, that could happen. Now start to put them all together, and what you're seeing is, uh, no, it just doesn't. It just doesn't uh, by accident fall into place at such. Precise levels. So we are looking at water, the temperature of the Earth, and the way water works in relation to other things. We're looking at the Earth's crust and its thickness being critical for maintaining life. The magnetic field—you either have it or you don't. With it, you can sustain life. Oxygen and nitrogen in the atmosphere—this is; these are the building blocks of life. Are they by chance?
2: This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick, with our special guest David Stein. Our subject. Does science show the existence of a creator? Coming up, so several things on our earth show our privilege. What about the things around our earth? That's next.
0: You're listening to Christian
7: Questions.
0: You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan.
2: Welcome back. Our subject for today, does science show the existence of a creator? We're live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9 Eastern and 6 to 8 Central. That means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866-985 for all. Or you can message us on your app. And we want to remind you to join us for our podcasting Monday nights from 8 to 10 Eastern. And that podcast on Monday nights will be live. It will be a call-in format
1: exactly like we do on Sunday mornings. So if you're not available Sunday mornings or you can only get part of it Sunday mornings, you can fill in the gaps Monday night with our live podcast. Go to ChristianQuestions.com, click Listen Live, 8 to 10 Eastern, and there you go. All right, so, so David, we've talked about several things that have to be in place for life to exist. You say, okay, what are the odds? What are the odds? What are the odds? Well, there's 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 four more points we want to make in this segment uh, before the end of the first hour about things that have to be in place. And these are really things that are really around our planet. First of all, the moon. Now, our moon is 25% the size of the earth. What does that mean?
3: Well, number one, it's unusual. Uh, there are big moons in our solar system, but they're around giants that are much, much larger than, than that. But the m- presence of the moon and its essentiality for life is something that's not intuitive. You know, the factors that we've talked about in the last segments and whatnot are kind of intuitive. Right. Yeah, yeah You know, you got you need liquid water and you need right. heat and things like this. But the moon's not intuitive. But the fact that it's so large, one uh, of the things that it does is it stabilizes the tilt of the Earth. And the tilt of the Earth is what gives us our seasons. It's what helps drive the weather and whatnot because of those inequalities of temperature that develop every year. Can you imagine if you know if our tilt was was more, then we have more extremes. If our if our tilt uh, was was less, uh, we would ha- not have the weather. We just have more constant. Uh, weather in uh, in the northern and southern latitudes and where it would be colder and um, hotter in the middle. So the tilt is just perfect. But it's the moon that helps keep that tilt and stabilizes that tilt over millions and billions of years. And it
1: has to be as large as it is to be able to perform the task that it needs to perform. Exactly. Okay, so that's the moon. Let's go again, let's go back to the privileged planet uh, for a soundbite on the moon to just reinforce this point.
6: For a size of planet like Earth, our moon is big. The current thinking is that if our moon didn't exist, neither would we. One fourth
4: the size of the Earth, the moon's powerful gravitational pull stabilizes the angle of its axis at a nearly constant 23.5 degrees. This ensures relatively temperate seasonal changes and the only climate in the solar system mild enough to sustain complex living organisms.
3: And, and you know that there's something else that the moon does. that You know, we have tides around the, around the uh, world, and the tides are produced by the gravitational force of the moon. Right. Without tides, you would not get the circulation uh, that we have. At least the circulation wouldn't be driven so well. And that circulation, again, brings food and materials and processes waste products and whatnot to enable life to continue. So the
1: moon is vital to life. We just don't normally think of it that way. Exactly. All right. What about, what about the sun? It's 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 the it's a type of star it's called a G2 type of star. So what? What does that mean?
3: <laughs> well, the type of star that, that that our sun is, uh this is a goldilocks thing. Uh it's just right. Uh if it, if the sun was was less massive than it is, then the Earth would have to be closer to it in order to right. uh, orbit around. But if the Earth was closer to it, it would be more gravitationally locked. And the closer planets in our system, because they're closer and get gravitational locked, that means that their rotation slowly slows down and the days get longer and longer and longer. Well, how long can be a day? I mean, come on. Well, if you live on Mercury, uh, it's 58 days equals one day. And oh, if, man. If you live on Venus... I would be so young. <laughs> <laughs> You'd also be so hot. <laughs> and likewise with Venus. Uh, one day on Venus is 243 Earth days. And those days are getting longer. It's slowing down because of its proximity.
1: Interesting. So they're actually getting longer. They are getting longer. and yep. But
3: our days don't. Well, actually, our days do. You know, our days are getting a little longer, too, but it's like a few microseconds every 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 year or so. So it's not something that would be noticed in millions notices. of years. Exactly right. Now, the other thing with the uh, with the star, uh, our sun, is that the light spectrum that it gives to us is just perfect for life. You know, when plants do photosynthesis, you know, they, they, they need a certain area of spectrum, and that's the, the frequency of light. You know, when you think of spectrums of light, just think colors. You know, you've got red is a a lower frequency of light, blue is a higher frequency of light. Well, the mix of frequencies, the mix of colors, if you will, that the sun gives us is just perfect for life and perfect for plants.
1: All right, let's go to another soundbite on the sun's spectrum. uh, Again, this is from the the case for a creator, and it gives us perspective on the value of the sun being what it is, where it is, uh, the size it is, and operating the way it does.
6: Fortunately, our sun is not only the right mass, but it also emits the right colors, a balance of red and blue. As a matter of fact, if we were orbiting a more massive star, called an F-dwarf, there would be much more blue radiation that would build up the oxygen and ozone layer even faster. But any very momentary interruption of the ozone layer would subject the planet to an immediate flood of highly intense ultraviolet radiation, which would be disastrous to life. Also, the more massive stars don't live as long. That's the major problem. Stars that are even just a little more massive than the sun live only a few billion years. Our sun is expected to last a total of about 10 billion years on its main sequence, burning hydrogen steadily. Whereas stars just a few tens of percent more massive have considerably less lifetime on the main sequence. And while on the main sequence, they change luminosity much faster. Everything on their life cycle happens faster.
1: So again, just right, not too large, not too small, and we have to be the right distance away. So it all works.
3: Yeah, Everything is right. And what's the probability of everything being right?
1: Right. And again, so you can look at each one of these things and say, what's the probability of of the sun being the right size? What's the probability of the moon being the right size and the right distance? What's the probability of having water? What's the probability of the magnetic field? What are the probabilities of all these things? Well, let's go to the next point on this, which is the right location in the galaxy. Uh, And again, Goldilocks into Goldilocks is very popular on this program. <laughs> I never anticipated that, but hey, <laughs> science and Goldilocks. A, so we are in a galactic Goldilocks zone. What do you mean by that in terms of the, the right location in the galaxy?
3: Well, when you study the galaxy, if you look pictures of the spiral galaxy, you can see that as you get to the center of the galaxy, stars become more dense. And that means that the radiation from stars becomes more dense. It also means something out. That, that there's something called a supernova. It's what happens to massive stars when they end their life cycle. And supernovas are absolutely essential for life because it's where the heavier elements are. All of the elements that we have, every, every atom uh, that, is, that makes Rick up, came from a supernova sometime in the past.
1: I feel so special. <laughs>
3: You're privileged, brother. Yes. <laughs> However, here's the flip side. You don't okay. want to be near one when it goes off. Right. And the supernovas are more uh, frequent in the center of the galaxy, which means that if the Earth was in that location, it's very likely that within a period of time, and we're talking time of millions and billions of years, a supernova close enough would wipe out all all life on the Earth. We're out, out near the fringes between a couple of bars, so we ha- we're relatively free from that. And there's something else, too. We haven't used the term the anthropic principle, but the anthropi- I was wondering why you wouldn't come up with that. There. Where's the anthropic principle, I'm saying to myself? Well, it's the flip side of scientism. Scientism says there's nothing special and only science. Anthropic principle says, yeah, earth is special and you are special and that everything was made for man. This is a religious concept, mm-hmm. and we get it from the scripture. Where the earth is located is, is in a place where we can look outside and see the heavens we can see other galaxies right. if we were closer in the center or even in one of the bars of the galaxy where the population of stars is high you wouldn't be able to see out you wouldn't know it we wouldn't have a lot of knowledge about the about the galaxy and universe that we have but where we're located is Perfect for us to be able to learn more about where we live.
1: All right. I'm going to rush you, uh, and there's a lot to cover here. Next point is giant gas planets protecting us. So, I mean, we've talked about our position in the solar system. Now we've talked about our position in the galaxy. Now we're going to talk about our position in relation to other planets. Just yeah. a quick overview of what does it mean, wh- wh- how do these giant gas planets protect us?
3: i got one got ter- one phrase for you, vacuum cleaner. Just think vacuum cleaner when you think of Jupiter and Saturn. And what I mean by this is that our our solar system is filled with a lot of debris. I mean, not as much now as it was when it first formed. But that debris can be deadly. You know, we have impacts on Earth where asteroids and other things right. have hit the Earth. And uh, even the idea is that uh, it, can, it can wipe out life or completely change it. The, uh, the, the dying of the dinosaurs supposedly is attributed to such a, an event. So we need something that will kind of clean these things up. And that's one thing that the giant gas planets do. They're so massive. I mean, they're a significant percentage of the size of the sun, so they have intense gravity, and they they pull, they suck this stuff in. We had an example just a few years ago. You may remember when the comet, the Eugene Levy comet, uh, broke up and went into Jupiter. It crashed into Jupiter. That's exactly the function we're talking. Yeah, about. I don't remember that happening, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, the presence of those gas those gas giants again helps. Thus, avoid the problems that could hurt life.
1: Okay. All right. So, David, we're almost out of time for this segment. So, um, we're actually going to skip the next soundbite because we, we won't have time for that. But, So, so you, we, you've mentioned eight different things here. There's eight different pieces that uh, are in place precisely so that we can exist. Talk about probability because we've been asking, well, what are the chances of that? What's the probability of this? Give us a sense of the probability here.
3: Well, putting all these factors together, and again, this is an estimate, just like the Drake equation at the beginning, this is an estimate, but putting all those factors together, and there was more that we didn't cover, I highly recommend either reading the book, The Privileged Planet, or looking at the, the video that's available uh, for uh, from Illustra Video. Uh just these factors alone, the probability of life uh, developing is 1 to 10 to the minus 15th. Now,
1: wait, 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 wait. 1 to 10 to the minus 15th. Jonathan, do you understand that?
3: Uh, no. no well, neither <laughs> do I. So what does that mean? Well, think of it this way. That a dime is one-tenth of a dollar. Yes. A penny is one-hundredth. Right. So you see that? We're, we're getting a, a larger number. A hundred is it. Well, now, put one with 15 zeros after it. That's a That's lot of That's one quadrillionth. That's a very low probability. And by the way, the way probability is figured is that you take individual probabilities and multiply them together to get a final one. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, if we had time, we could talk about flipping coins and whatnot to illustrate it. But when you have low probabilities and you start multiplying them together, the probabilities get small very, very fast. This is tiny. This is not the, well, 10,000 civilizations in the galaxy that Drake said. No, this is one quadrillionth. Just using these factors alone, the possibility.
1: All right. Now you were talking to, to us before. We've got about a minute left here about a visualization of that probability using dimes.
3: Yeah. Well, th- actually, this is something we're going to talk about a little bit later. Oh, okay. All right. All yeah. Right. Let me, yeah. Let, let's we'll save it for the second hour then. Yeah. But the, the, the point here being is right that this is very, very unlikely, exceedingly so unlikely. Uh, people start to wonder. Well, it's almost like. The universe was just designed for us. That's where we're going.
2: Jonathan Job twenty six seven. He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing.
3: Who was out there that took a picture of that back in Old Testament times? Yeah, you got to <laughs> wonder how do they know that?
1: How did they know that? So, so as we wrap up this hour, David, what we've done is we've looked at the earth and we've looked at some of the the basic principles of life, if you will, that have to be in place in very precise fashion for for life to, to, to exist. We looked at it in comparison to the Drake uh, theory, which said back in 1961, oh, there's got to be at least 10,000 different planets that can support life in our galaxy. But as you analyze what produces life, what we've come up with is, no, that's not true.
3: Yeah. Drake says that human life is unexceptional. What we found, it, it is exceptional. So...
1: We are privileged. We live on a privileged planet in a privileged place for privileged reasons. In the second hour, what we're going to do is look at the privilege of life here on Earth. Further, look, it astounds me to even think about this kind of thing, trust me. (laughs) And we're going to look at... Further evidence of the existence of intelligence behind the design, not only of our planet, but of the universe. So folks, you've got to stay with us for Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions and our special guest, David Stein. Does science show the existence of a creator? Boy, come back for the second hour, but till then, think about it.
0: It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. You're tuned into Christian Questions. Join the conversation now, on air or online at ChristianQuestions.com and download our app by searching for Christian Questions Radio. Here's Rick and Jonathan.
1: Richard Feynman once said, Science is the belief in the ignorance of the experts. (laughs) Think about that one. (laughs) Good morning. Welcome back. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a very different perspective. And Jonathan, we have got an incredibly amazing topic on the
2: table this morning. We do, Rick, and our question is, does science show the existence of a creator? And our theme text is found in Psalms chapter 19, verse 4. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. So,
1: to manage this very important, very enlightening subject, question. Does science show the existence of a creator? We have... uh, our special friend and guest, at David Stein, with us. David, thanks for staying for the second hour. Oh, my privilege. Um, I, of course, we couldn't have pried him out of the studio if we wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> He's in into this one, I'll tell you. And, and so, David, just let, let's get give a, a quick review of what we talked about in in the first hour.
3: what What was on What was on the table? In the first hour, what we did is we looked at secular science using the Drake equation. Says that intelligent life, there's nothing special about it at all, and they Calculated that there's 10,000 civilizations just in the Milky Way at all uh, in itself. What we looked at is a number of factors that say something different, that life is very special. We looked at factors that, that in, their, uh, in their individual consideration are very improbable. You know, like the fact that Earth has water, the fact that we're in a perfect place. We have this Goldilocks principle that we see applied. Everything was just right. The thickness of the Earth's crust, the magnetic field, the consistency of the atmosphere, the presence of a large moon, uh, our sun being the right size and giving the right light, our location in the galaxy, the fact that our solar system is gas giants. All of these are individual factors, but when put together, they show that life depends upon a very, very uh, s- a set of, of criteria, which is extremely unlikely, like one quadrillionth. And there's more factors than what we looked at.
1: So what you're saying is life is meticulously planned. Yes. In, uh, in every aspect. And if you have meticulous planning, you have a meticulous planner.
3: Exactly right. And in this hour, we're going to go into another concept that's related to that. In fact, it's the same concept with different words. It's called the fine-tuning of the universe.
1: Okay, and we're going to be talking about something called constants. And speaking of constants, let's go to the phone because we have a constant calling us. I think it's Julius from Connecticut. Good morning, Julius, and welcome to the program. (laughs)
8: <laughs> gentlemen, good morning. Your are science. Morning, you, did you know Matt?
1: that? <laughs> he uh, keeps
8: showing up. Rick, miss, missed you last
1: week. <laughs> yeah, we missed us last week, too. <laughs>
8: and uh, Pastor David Stein, thank you for your input. Uh, I, I feel pretentious to just participate in this discussion. <laughs> Another adjective, uh, Professor Rick, you <laughs> may use uh, uh, with uh, meticulous is precarious. Life is precarious, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, so uh, fearfully, wonderfully made by, by the words of the psalmist. Okay, here's uh, uh, my pretension. Uh, I submit to you, uh, dear ones this morning, uh, my fellow uh, Bible students, that uh, the most significant text in the whole Bible, I know this is pretentious, is Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 where it says, let there be light. And my interpretation of that, in, to complement your discussion, is our Creator's interest in our planet. God is light, and He promises to make the place of His feet, His footstool, He promises to make it glorious, unique, the essence is indeed unique, just one one thing about water, if I may, uh, I won't take too much of a time. Uh, I researched, I, I found out that our blood, the human blood, is 92% water. Thank you, and God bless.
2: Thank you, Julius. Appreciate your call.
1: Good day. So he added to meticulous precarious, and I think it's really, really well stated.
3: It, it, it's a, It's a word I've seen in the literature before, because if the balance is off just a little bit, things don't happen. By the way, I I, I like Julius' thought about let there be light in yeah. Genesis 1. I saw a t-shirt once that, it, you know, how t-shirts have these messages. Well, it had, all of this higher-level math. I mean, you look at it, most people, including myself, don't understand all the terms. All this math and whatnot, Then in the bottom, and there was light. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, and, and, and it's a mathematical process. And, and that's the point. It's a meticulous mathematical process. So we want to get into the, what you call, David, the testimony of universal constants. First of all, what is a constant?
3: Well, a constant is a value that, is in, that, that we have in our universe that describes physical law. And it's the same. It never varies. And all the things that take place in the universe, all of the way that, that things move and develop, all the processes are limited and bounded and regulated by these constants. Now, An the, example. Give an example well, of a Well, for example, the, the speed of light. Now, this okay. is not something we have in our everyday experience. But the, the, the speed of light is about 186,000 miles per second. That doesn't vary Anywhere in the universe, it doesn't matter where you go, uh, it's always the same. That's why we use the term constant. And there's other constants the same way. Again, remember that these constants regulate all of the processes which take place in the universe.
1: Okay, so we're going to look at how that becomes critical to life and shows us, in fact, that we are privileged to have life and not some matter of fact mediocre sort of thing that just kind of happened one day
3: yeah that's right to, to relate back to our first hour what these constants do they are the basis for many of the things that we saw like the luminosity of the sun and the and the color and the size of the, the maximum strength of gravity and all those things uh, the constant is what regulates that
1: let's go to a soundbite uh, again from the Privileged Planet the book and the video uh, on, on the fundamental constants and the fine tune Tuning uh, of our universe.
5: If you were to take the basic fundamental constants of nature and you were to change these even slightly or you were to pick their values at random, you would almost never get a universe that would be habitable in any sort of way. That is, you couldn't have galaxies, you couldn't have planets, you couldn't have complex biological organisms if these uh, fundamental constants were even slightly different, slightly stronger, slightly weaker than they actually are in this universe. That's the idea of fine-tuning
1: that's pretty amazing slightly stronger slightly weaker if they weren't exactly the way they are things just wouldn't work e-
3: exactly right and we you know we ended the first segment with a with a number of probability just on those we're gonna see probabilities now in this segment that are f- by far much more Okay,
1: more than one in a quadrillion. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> It's mind-blowing to even think about this. So, uh, folks, just want to give you a, a quick reminder. secure Rewind, the full edition, is a free service available at ChristianQuestions.com. You can download it through your, your Christian Questions app. All of what we're talking about will be in CQ Rewind, the full edition, and it will give you the numbers, the science behind the things, Tons of references to go find more for yourself and all of this to prove that there is an intelligent designer behind the intelligent design of our planet and the universe. And just one quick thought, David, I'm not even going to ask you, and I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm not going to ask you for for response on this. But we are, as we go through this, we're looking at science with, with the idea that it proves an intelligent designer. And many Christians... Look at science, sort of, you know, one eye open, one eye closed, perhaps. And you know, there are those uh, creationist scientists, uh, scientists, uh, creationists, rather, who say, "Well, the Earth was created in six twenty-four hour days, and so forth." We're not talking about that. We're we're talking about literally the rules and laws of science. Proving the existence of God. Correct. Okay, so just wanted to put that in place. So now there's four fundamental
3: forces. Oh, oh, Rick, can, I, can, I, can we do one quote here? I suppose so. <laughs> Most people have heard of Stephen Hawking. If they, they do, He's a, uh, a scientist over in England, and he's been around for a while. He's considered like a second Einstein, very smart man, uh, and not necessarily a religious man. But in his book, A Brief History of Time, he said this, and we're talking about the fine-tuning of the universe. He says, and I quote, The remarkable fact is that the values of those numbers, in other words, the constants of physics, seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life this is a one of the thinkers of the world yeah, who, who was, says
1: who made those adjustments who made the adjustments you know, who turned right. the thermostat to be just right. right okay <laughs> you know who did that and it is an intelligent designer who did so there's four fundamental forces known in the universe uh, david and you know we have uh, maybe four minutes to go through these four. So good luck with that. Oh, good, okay. <laughs> the stru- first is the strong nuclear force. W- what is that?
3: What does it mean? All right, it's the force that binds uh, protons and neutrons together in the nucleus of an atom. Now, protons have a plus charge. And if you remember, again, your high school physics, that like charges repel and unlike charges attract. Well, if you've got a ball full of like charges, it should fly apart. But it doesn't because of the strong nuclear force. The best way I can relate it to our everyday experience, if you've ever seen a video of the explosion of an atomic bomb, yeah. that is the release of the strong nuclear force since the, the, it's being, uh, uh, the atom is being split. And here's, here's the, uh, the uh, pr- precision. If this were weaker, this force, the strong nuclear force were weaker, by one part in, all right, get this, 10,000, billion, billion, billion. One followed by 40 uh, zeros. 40 zeros? 40 zeros. No element except hydrogen could exist. So that's if it were weaker? If it were weaker. Okay. If it were stronger, uh, then there'd be only heavier elements because they they wouldn't split apart. They wouldn't make other things and you'd have no hydrogen and just heavier elements. Again, no life. Look at that precision. The precariousness that Julius talked about.
1: That is mind-blowing. Ten... Uh, a one followed by 40 zeros and jewel when you do that rewind put the 40 zeros just listen just put them all out there just to, to make the point okay so you've got the strong nuclear force what about the weak nuclear force i never even knew
3: there was a weak nuclear force <laughs> well this is the this is the second uh, force and this regulates the rate of radioactive decay you know so this, some of our heavier atoms that uh, that are radioactive they break down into lighter elements and whatnot at a certain rate and it's the strong nuclear force it's really a force in it that allows some of these neutrons and protons to break away uh, again this is another force that's reckoned with and if it were weaker there'd be no heavier elements because supernovas that we talked about earlier yeah, that's what I'm made of <laughs> that's right star stuff exactly <laughs> uh, if there were no supernovas <laughs> if, if the force was weaker uh, there wouldn't be life and if it were stronger again you wouldn't have enough heavier ele- elements to make life possible
1: so Again,
3: this weak nuclear force
1: has to be exactly precise, just like the other. And how come you were laughing so much when he said star (laughs) stuff, huh? That's what I want to know. Okay. Maybe stuff, but...
3: Okay, so you've got the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force. The f- the third point is gravitational force. Right. The, the first two, probably most of our audience never heard of, but these next two that they have, everybody knows what gravity is. You know, throw a ball up in the air, it comes down. This is the attraction between, uh, throughout the universe, between all matter. All matter tends to kind of clump together, and it clumps together very precisely based upon the constant of gravitational force. Now, again, let's just ask the question. It, it's, it's finely balanced. If it were weaker... That means that gravity would not hold things together as much. And it means that you wouldn't have a sufficient gravitational force in stars to to have fusion. Fusion is what drives a star for billions and billions of years. It's the power source. So if gravity were were much weaker, you wouldn't have fusion, and then you wouldn't have any heavier elements. If it were stronger, stars would burn up too fast because everything is clumped together and it's Mm -hmm, hotter, mm -hmm. and the lifespan of stars would be short. So again, it's just right for life in this universe. Goldilocks, Goldilocks rules in science. <laughs>
1: okay, so you've got the strong nuclear force, very incredibly precise. The weak nuclear force, incredibly precise. The gravitational force is incredibly precise. And then the fourth point, David, is the electromagnetic force. What is that? And. Obviously, it's very precise, I'm guessing.
3: Uh, it's very precise, <laughs> and we're going to read an illustration in a moment. Uh, for this, again, th- the, think electricity. Electricity is an example of the, of the uh, electromagnetic force, and, and magnetic fields are an example. Uh, it's the attractive and repulsive force in electricity and magnetism. So, again, if it were weaker, uh, let me take a step back. It's the electromagnetic force that allows molecules to form. You got elements, molecules are when you put elements together. Like we talked about water, hydrogen and oxygen. It's the electromagnetic force that keeps the hydrogen and oxygen atoms together. Okay. If it were weaker, then chemical bonding would be less and if you can't have chemicals, can't make chemicals, can't have life. If it were stronger, then the molecules would just continue to, to uh, collect together and heavier elements would be unstable because they're being so forced they would be disrupted by the other forces we mentioned. Again, new, uh, no life. Now, here's, here's the illustration that you wanted to get to earlier in this Okay,
1: deep. you know what? Here's what we're going to do. Okay. We're going to take a break, right. and then at the, as, as soon as we come back in from the break, we're going to go through that illustration, because what you're going to do is you're going to illustrate the probability. Yes. Okay, and so, folks, understand that we're looking at these four things, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, the gravitational force, the electromagnetic force. Each individually has odds that are incomprehensible of just happening. So this is all evidence true, clear-cut evidence of design.
2: This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan, here with Rick, with our special guest, David Stein. Our subject, Does Science Show the Existence of a Creator? Coming up, so do cosmetics have anything to do with the privilege and beauty of life? Well, we know what Mary Kay would say. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) That's next. Cosmetics? What? You're listening to
0: Christian Questions. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com.
2: Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Our subject for today is, Does Science Show the Existence of a Creator? We're live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9 Eastern and 6 to 8 Central. That means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866 985 all or you can message us on your app. And I want to remind you, you can join us for podcasting Monday nights from 8 to 10 Eastern.
1: And that podcast will be live. We'll take calls, just like we do on our Sunday morning programs. And we will have David Stein again with us Monday night, 8 to 10. So if you missed the first part, you want to engage in the conversation podcasting, go to ChristianQuestion.com, click Listen Live, and join us. Tell your friends. That's right. Okay, so so David, we were talking about these different uh, forces, four fundamental forces known in the universe, and the fourth one was the electromagnetic force. And at the end of the segment, you had this illustration. You said it's it's crucial to uh, one in the ten to the thirty seventh power.
3: So, what's your illustration? Let's let's make that real. Well, let, let's say we were talking about uh, electricity and magnetism as this fourth force. Uh, and we mentioned earlier that electrons have a negative charge and protons have a positive charge. Our universe is is net neutral, which means that there's an equal number. How equal is that? And how precise is that? Well, Dr. Hugh Ross, uh, who's a uh, scientist, and he's a believer, he's a Christian, he's written uh, several books, has a great website, um, he gave this illustration of the precision of the ratio to protons to neutrons. And I quote, cover the entire north american continent in dimes all the way up to the moon in comparison the money oh
1: okay wait wait dimes over the entire north american continent
3: all the way up to the moon
1: Piled all
3: the way up to the moon. Yeah, and the That's moon, a lot of dimes. That's a lot of dimes. The moon averages about 230,000 miles from us. So okay. uh, imagine a column of dimes, I think. Okay. And to put it in perspective, he says the money to pay for the U.S. federal debt would cover one square mile less than two feet with dimes.
1: Okay, wait, wait. When did he write that? Because that might be two square miles. <laughs> yeah,
3: <now>. yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. The rate we're spending All right, he says next, pile dimes from here to the moon on a billion other continents of the same size as North America.
1: Wait, wait, wait. So, you have a billion North Americas, a billion of them, with dimes piled from here to the moon. Yes. A billion of those.
3: Yep. Okay. All right. So, now, paint one dime red out of all of these dimes and mix it into the billions of piles of dimes. Now, blindfold Jonathan and ask him to pick out one dime. The odds that he will pick the red dime are 1 in 10 to the minus 37th. And that's Dad. only one of the parameters that's so delicately balanced to permit life. That
1: is unbelievable. Intelligent design. These things don't happen by chance. They happen by clear-cut design. So, cosmetics... <laughs> what? Actually, the the, the subject for this, this segment is the cosmological constant. Not cosmetics, Jonathan. Cosmological.
3: Oh, oh okay. <laughs> Actually, you know, Jonathan isn't that far off the, the beaten track here, because in the Bible, one of the words for world is cosmos. You know, we, we think about Carl Sagan's series, and we use the word. But really, it's a Greek word that, that means the arrangement of things. So when they translate it world, it's the arrangement, the social arrangement. And that's where cosmetics comes from. It's the arranging of your face and hair as opposed to the arranging of society on Earth. So he got it right. See, He's you're good.
1: made of star stuff, too. How about that? <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right, so, David, this cosmological constant, what is it?
3: Well, we mentioned earlier the four fundamental. Uh, this probably should be considered one of the fundamental uh, constants, but it has only in the 20th century been recognized. Uh, most of you have probably heard of the Big Bang theory. Yeah. You know where where the Earth started out in this primordial nucleus, whatever it was, and then it exploded. And it didn't explode in the sense of an of, a, of we think of an explosion because it's an explosion of space, of not just material. And the universe has been been growing and growing. And Edmund Hubble measured the rate of that expansion, and so forth and so on. Well, the question is, you know, what what is the force that's driving that expansion? And the answer, it's the cosmological constant.
1: So, so just let me interrupt you here. So what you're saying is the universe itself is continuing to expand. Yes. Okay, yes. and we can look at that and we can see that and sort of document that.
3: That's right. And they've, okay. they've measured the rate of it. Now, if you think about the force of gravitation that wants to collapse the universe right. and the cosmological constant that wants to expand the universe, you wonder, well, what's the difference between two? What's going to happen eventually? Because it's two opposing forces. Th- that's right. Are, are we going to go back to that one thing or are we just going to expand and dilute forever? So that was the question that scientists were asking. So they, they performed a lot of experiments to measure the, the cosmological constant and therefore measure the rate of expansion. And what they found was astounding. The cosmological constant, the force for expanding, and gravitation for the force for contraction are so close together, so finely tuned, that we will have a universe that is neither going to expand forever or collapse. It's going to reach some stability where, the, where, where it just continues on. In other words, we have some mathematical basis here for a universe that will continue forever. But what's of interest here is the value of this cosmological constant. Now, again, we said if, if it were weaker, in other words, the force expanding, then we would go back stronger with right. the other. So how close is it? Well, they measured it, and it is precise to a value of 10 to the 120th power.
1: All right, wait, 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 wait. Okay, let's time out. So the, the thing with the dimes on the billion... North American continents
3: all piled all the
1: way up to the moon. That was 10 to the 37th power?
3: Yeah, it's, that's like nothing compared to this. <laughs> I mean, that, like nothing. I mean, a one with 120 zeros, uh, just to put it in perspective, again, these are numbers that we can't imagine. Right, they're they're right. so large, we, we can't even conceive them. We write them down on paper. Yeah, okay, but you can't conceive them because they're so big. But they estimate that the number of atoms in the universe is 10 to the 80th. This is forty magnitudes uh, larger than that. At least more precise than that. That's
1: amazing. So that number is dictating the precision of the the relationship yes. between this cosmological constant and and the and the gravitational force. I, exactly.
3: The balance. The precision is you can't you can't imagine it. It's so precise.
1: So so folks, let's just pause and consider for a second here, because what you're looking at is. There has to be, by pure definition of what we're talking about, by mathematics and by science, there has to be design. There has to be. And if you are thinking and following all of this, these are not numbers you're making up, David. These are, these are scientific numbers by, by, by people who do this. Yeah, scientific facts, not
3: speculation. These are measured quantities.
1: Now... So you look at that and say, okay, there's got to be a designer. Now, let's blow your mind with this,
3: okay, like it's not already blown.
1: But anyway, let's let's take an aside for a moment, and let's go to a few scriptures, because you made a really important point. And when I first saw this in your notes, I stopped. I called my wife over. I said, Trish, come here. You have to see this, because to me, it's one of those things. You talked about the universe expanding,
2: Let's go to Job chapter 9, verse 8. Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea. Stretches out the heavens.
3: Isn't that fabulous? I mean, that is a description of what science has found since the 1930s. That the heavens are stretching. They're getting larger. They're expanding. It's just unbelievable.
2: Let's go to Isaiah 41, verse 5. Thus says God the Lord, Who created the heavens and stretched them out. Who spread out the earth and its offspring. Who gives breath to the people on it. And spirit to those who walk in it. Here's a verse that's
1: defining the intelligence. And it says, he created the heavens. And then what did he do? Stretched them out. Expanded them. And what does science say is happening right now? The universe is expanding. It's stretching. How? How? Would the prophet Isaiah in ancient times, how would Job, who was even in more ancient times than Isaiah, have possibly been able to figure out that the universe
3: is stretching out? You must be in contact with somebody that knows a lot. <laughs> <laughs>
1: One last verse on this, because it, it's such a fanatic, a fantastic thing. And again, the fact that this is mentioned several times in Scripture, it's not just a one-time statement that you say, okay, all right, yeah, you know, that, they got lucky with that. Again, in Isaiah
2: 45, verse 12. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands, and I ordained all their hosts.
1: So again, David, a a clear cut reference to intelligence, and you know, in in the case of scripture, it gives intelligence a name. It says it's God Almighty. Yeah, yeah. Folks, I want to remind you just just take take a moment, as, as, you know, b- breathe on this. See, because to me, this gives us a sense of not only clarification from a scientific perspective of the role. That God Almighty plays. Now, if you have a problem calling God, God, okay. Call it, we're talking about the role that an intelligent designer plays. You can do that, I'm good with it. Because what it's saying is, this is not all chance. This is not all happenstance. This is not just, you know, in, in, in the middle of the sentence, I want to pause. We did a program with you a few years ago about evolution. Mm-hmm. And one of the sound bites was uh, in, in trying to prove uh, evolution, it was the, the monkey that got lucky. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <I> that. <laughs> this is not as a result of some monkey that got lucky. This is a meticulously designed cosmos that we look at and say look at how it works together look how it doesn't destroy itself look at how all the parts fit and when you look at the mathematical probabilities look at this and say it can't be it can't be just it just can't be uh, something that's that, that that just kind of happened
3: yeah exactly right we we've, we've tried to stick with the facts of science let me just recap where we've gone okay we started out by the scientists saying that life there's nothing special about it it exists everywhere Then we looked at the scientific data and found out that we live on a privileged planet. This is very unusual by any stretch of the imagination. Then we started to look at the basic physics upon which the whole world operates, and we found the level of precision where things have to be in order for there to be life, which is incredible, which is mind-boggling. So from a scientific standpoint, do you say, well, yeah, all right, this was just one lucky thing. Or do you say, and many scientists have, and we're going to make another quote here in a moment, saying, you know, looking at the evidence, at the scientific evidence, that it is so unlikely, so un- vanishingly unlikely, that this has to have come about as a result of a designer. That's the point.
1: There is a designer. And folks, you know, you take heart into that. And, and to me, David, that is a comforting, comforting thought. Because if there's a designer, then there is a design. Right, right. And, w- and we see his design shining through in science. You said do
3: you wanted to go to another quote? Yeah, there was a British astrophysicist by the name of uh, Fred Hoyle. He's He's long gone now since. And Fred Hoyle was no religious man. You read some of the other things that he wrote. But here's what he concluded looking at all of the things that we've looked at and actually we know a little bit more than what he did at the time and this specifically Rick should be an address to those that still want to say well you're not being scientific here is the conclusion of a scientific mind and a well-known scientific mind he said quote a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The number one numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion beyond question. So,
1: a scientific mind is saying, "Look, use your head." Is, is I'm, I'm paraphrasing, sex. right? Yep. Use yep. your head. Look at the facts. Look at how they have come to be. Look at all the pieces that go into it. And realize
3: it's design. Yeah. And he doesn't have a religious agenda. Right. He's a scientist. You know, we can be accused of that because we're believers. We believe in the scriptures. But that if uh, a, a very objective look at science will help you to draw the same conclusion.
1: All right. All right. Folks, if you have a thought, it's 866-985-4255, toll free, 866 985 all We are live Sunday mornings from... What time are we on Sunday morning? 7 to 9, <laughs> <laughs> Seven to nine Eastern. <laughs> that means we're on right now. Well, you know what? I keep thinking about podcasting. Oh, I know you do. Because our very, very first Live podcast is happening Monday evening from 8 to 10. Yes. And we really would love for you to join us for that very first launch of of uh, of our of Christian Questions uh, live podcasting tomorrow night, Monday night, from 8 to 10. And David will be with us.
3: Yeah, And you know, Rick, for those that are listening today, a lot of this is kind of mind-boggling. But you've got a day and a half to kind of mold this over. So when we go on on, on Monday night on a podcast, you may want to call in with some additional questions or clarifications and things. We'd be glad to field them. That's a great
1: suggestion. And, and podcasts, actually, the, the, the broadcasts are a little, little bit longer. Uh, David, let, let's get back to on subject the multiple universe theory. Okay. You know, I was thinking about that the other day, Jonathan. You know, you were. What about the multiple universe theory? You know, I hope David has time to cover that
3: The, the same conversation with the polarization of water, no right, right? Absolutely. <laughs> well, now if you are an atheist scientist, and uh, you like the paradigm that you've had, there's no God and no creator. And you start to look at all these things; they're going to make you uncomfortable, and they do. So, how do you explain it if you're of that frame of mind? Well, the explanation that they've come come up with, which I don't know of any others, but this is their explanation. It is so improbable as to be without question that there's something. So, as an atheist, if you're going to deal with probabilities, well, suppose our universe is just one of an infinite number of universes. And all these infinite number of universes have all these other combinations of constants and all these things. So, if that's true, well, then one of them's got to hit on all the right things. Therefore, when you're dealing with an infinite uh, sample size, now, okay, we can have one and that makes sense. So, that is the response. Now, here's the problem with that. Up to this point, we've said, what's the scientific data? What's the evidence? Right. Now, if you take the multiple universe theory, you ask, what's your scientific evidence for that? There is none. None? There is none. Like zero? There's zero. Okay, what's the
1: probability of that? (laughs) Zero. (laughs) Right.
3: (laughs) I mean, you know, you can can suggest and you can come up with these things, and, and they will address the point of low probability. If you've got a sample size that's infinite, then anything can happen. But there's no scientific evidence for that. So what that reduces, it's no longer science. We've been trying to stick to the realm of science. That's philosophy. And that is even more religious in terms of the faith required than what we have for the truth. So folks, there you have it.
1: When we're looking at probability and we're looking at the facts of science, the conclusion
2: is very obvious. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick with our special guest David Stein. Our subject, Does Science Show the Existence of a Creator? Coming up, we've observed with awe the universal uh, precision of life. Now, what about the tiniest forms of life? That's next.
0: You're listening to Christian Questions. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan.
2: Welcome back. Our subject for today, Does Science Show the Existence of a Creator? We're live Sunday mornings from 7 to 9 Eastern and 6 to 8 Central. That means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866 985 all Or you can message us on your app. And for a subject like today's, you should sign up for CQ Rewind, the full edition.
1: That really is a must. If you don't subscribe, give it a try. You can always unsubscribe with the click of a button and nobody will bother
2: you. But Wait uh, till you see the graphics and illustrations th- on this one. This, You're right, Jonathan.
1: This is just, just, it's not just merely fascinating. It is awe-inspiring. When you look at all of these things and you begin to put them together and you realize there is a deep, and comprehensive story of intelligent design that cannot be refuted using science. <laughs> so it's really quite an amazing thing. So, so David, we've talked about a lot of big, universal things. And Jonathan, at the end of the last segment, you said, "Well, what about tiniest forms of life?" So, so David, let's do that. Let, let's let's switch gears. Let's go from the big, the massive, and the incomprehensible in terms of massiveness to the incomprehensible in terms of tininess. The K- kinesin. What is? How does that is? Kinesin. Kinesin. What is the kinesin?
3: Well, this is something that I discovered just uh, just a few years ago, and uh, there's a great video on the internet. If you get the, the pre wine document you may be looking at today or the rewind, please go to that because it's it's well done. What a kinesin is? It's a molecular machine that's in our cells, and what it does is it pulls a load from one place. To another along a, a road called a microtube. Sounds like Rise of the Robots or something. <laughs> well, there's there's an illustration in uh, in our document, our rewind document. Uh, but basically, the way it works, it literally steps, and that's one of the amazing things here. It's got two feet, and what happens is that. And this one, is on a molecular level. On a molecular level, it's inside your cells. And it pulls a load from one place to another, and it literally steps along this roadway called a microtubule. And, uh, again, there's an illustration there, but the video is a a plus C. You know, just like in a factory, you have to move uh, material from one place to another. That's exactly what this does. And it functions so well. And, again, some of the the, uh, – we talked about electromagnetics earlier, the way that the the feet adhere to the the road Mm -hmm. and then repel and then come out, you know, like that – it's great stuff. But coming back to this idea of design, how can such a thing come into existence through a series of accidents? It just it, it yeah, boggles yeah, the yeah, mind. It, it can't be. It doesn't make any sense. In every way, it reflects design. In every way, it reflects intelligence. And uh, again, I highly recommend the video. Uh, the, this idea of, of a little walking uh, machine that pulls things around the cell is, is mind-boggling.
1: So, and that, so that's something that's just way inside that you don't know, you don't feel, you don't understand, but it's there doing it, its job, one of, one of millions upon millions of jobs being done within your cellular activity every millisecond of every day. Again, is that all by chance or is that by design? So that's a pretty cool thing. I'd never heard of that before. So, what about what about mitochondrial DNA? Now, I sound pretty, pretty didn't I? Sound pretty that, fancy. That was saying? good. That yeah, was very. Yeah, nice. I practiced <laughs> that. Before I so, tell me about mitochondrial DNA, will you,
3: please? Well, this this came uh, to the fore oh, several years ago. Don't have the exact year, but what mitochondrial DNA is? It's part of our inheritance that we get from our mother. That's that's why they call it maternal right. mitochondrial DNA. And they did a a little bit of research on the structure of this mitochondrial DNA. And what they found, they didn't expect to find. They found that every human being on Earth came from one woman sometime in the past, one mother of us all. Okay. They called it the Eve Hypothesis. Well, how about that? <laughs> yeah. now, I mean, they chose Who that. allowed them to get away with calling it that? That's yeah, what I want to know. I was going to say, it has some religious connotations <laughs> and, what, and they didn't intend that. But that is a scientific fact. Now when it was released, there was some criticism in some circles of science because they didn't like the, the, the conclusion, they didn't like the result. And they said, well, you use this uh, particular method to to uh, derive it. Um, and there can be, uh, you didn't use the more modern method. Well, they used the more modern method, got the same results. Uh, so, and it, it, you know, it, it's a beautiful thing. But now, here's the thing that I just discovered when I was preparing for this program. Uh, they tried to put a number on how long ago did, they, did our ancestral mother, Eve, live. And they said about 200,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, that doesn't uh, quite relate to uh, our scriptures understanding right, and whatnot. Right. Like well, I found a study. Uh, it was a scientist, I believe, in Czechoslovakia. Um, well, let me take a step back. The way that they, the reason or method that they conclude it was 200,000 years ago is they look at the rate of mutations in the DNA and they compare it with the modern rate. Mm-hmm. And so they just extrapolated back and they got that. But this scientist uh, from uh, somewhere in Europe, he did a study on some families in Russia. And he found a very much of an enhanced rate of mitochondrial DNA mutation. And so he did a recalculation and says, Well, it looks like Eve lived about eh, six thousand, sixty, five hundred years ago. <laughs> and I was thrilled when I saw that. So what I'm saying is that, you know, there's some things in these in scientific results that you like and some things well just doesn't quite fit. Like two hundred thousand doesn't do, right. years doesn't sure. fit. Sure. But now you see that science doesn't have all the answers. You know, you can pick and choose, and you can cherry pick, and, you know, we're guilty of that at times. But we would like to be as objective as possible. So finding this one study that redoes the, the numbers, re-crunches the numbers and comes out, I like that.
1: And, you know, the idea that everyone comes from that one mother is is really very, very significant, because that really does put things in a perspective where you've got to look at Scripture and say, well, that's what it says. And, and it gives you a very clear-cut, precise uh, understanding of uh, a beginning, a human beginning, and you know we were not going to get into the evolutionary thing at this point. That's a subject for another program, but that's a fascinating, fascinating idea. Mitochondrial DNA, the Eve hypothesis. Well, what about what about DNA in general? Because I remember several years ago when they first started, they first mapped out. The The Human Genome Project. Yeah, and it was like this massive, massive project that took years to accomplish. So what about DNA in general?
3: Well, what I really appreciate about uh, what they've discovered uh, about DNA connects up with our computerized society. Uh, Almost everybody uses a computer now. I mean, your your cell phones uh, run on a computer chip. We've got home appliances now with a computer chip. In order for computers to work, they have to be programmed. And there's a programming language that allows you to do it. But you get down to the very basics of all computer programs, and it's either a one or a zero. Right. That's the, what we call the codons, the basic part of it. Now, scientists, when they discovered DNA in the 1950s and have done all of this uh, research, in the Human Genome Project in particular, there is no question that DNA is a computer program. <laughs> now, instead of having ones and zeros, it's got four codons. I mean, for those of you that are interested, adenine, thymine, guanine, and cytosine. I the, love cytosine. Don't you? Tell me <laughs> <that>? <laughs> but just like you have ones and zeros, that's the very basis. And, and the way that you combine these in a code is where you come up with the program to make a mouse, to make a bacteria, to make an elephant, to make a human being. It is a computer program. Now, who invented the programming language? Who invented the machine to encode and decode the the, uh, human DNA program? Obviously, intelligence comes from intelligence. Programs come from intelligence. That is our universal experience in life. So when we look at the human genome and we look at human DNA, how can we say, well, it it just happened by accident? There are so many questions uh, regarding the, the origin of DNA that have no answer and no theory in materialistic science that we conclude that this is the simplest and most logical answer in accord with our everyday experience. So
1: it came about because it was designed to come about. Okay, let, let's, let's go to another, another point, and we're getting a little bit shy on time. We've got maybe three or four minutes
3: left. Okay. The ribosome. Well, the ribosome is a machine within our cells that makes proteins. More machines inside More our cells. More machines inside our I mean, our, our cells are filled with these tiny molecular machines that do things. But the ribosome is especially important. We talked about DNA a moment ago. Uh, when, when you need to make a protein, let's say it's an enzyme for, or some function that the cell needs, well, what the, what the uh, cell does, it goes back to the original DNA. It makes a copy of that section in what's called messenger RNA. The messenger RNA comes through the cell and finds a ribosome. And then the ribosome takes that messenger RNA. It says, use one of the four codons here, then use this one, then use this one, this one. So
1: they're all, they're like talking to each other.
3: That's right. It's manufacturing a protein based on amino acid, or manufacturing amino acid for a protein based upon these instructions. Now, ribosomes are made of proteins. Ribosomes make proteins. We have a classic chicken and egg story here.
1: Which came first.
3: Which came first. You need a ribosome to make a protein, and yet... You you can't have a ribosome without already having proteins. You see the problem? Right, right. Someone had to start this process
1: so it, it didn't just pop up one day uh, and again when you have the the, the theory of irre- irreducible complexity what you're saying is all these things couldn't have just fallen into place simultaneously yeah. to begin a process it had to have been by design
3: and all of these machines are incredibly complicated and beautiful yes <laughs> amazing stuff
1: folks again if you are if you are listening in this morning and you know you uh, hopefully you're listening and your jaws dropped you know a few segments ago and you're thinking this is just incredible stuff we want to encourage you if you don't get Crew Rewind the full edition to subscribe now at christianquestions.com or through your app because you want to have this material in your hands you want to have it for reference and it, it look it is a real faith strengthener when you look at how all of this works David we've got maybe about two minutes left um, you have a few amazing creatures listed here pick one you know what do the sea turtle because the sea turtle. Because okay. I, I was really amazed by that. Uh, what about the sea turtle is so amazing?
3: Well, the sea turtle's life cycle, it starts out on a beach somewhere in the, in the Caribbean, the other parts in the world, but let's just take some place off the coast of Mexico or something like that. The eggs hatch, and these sea turtles come out. And they go go flopping through the sand. By the way, there were some engineers that looked at the arrangement of the sea turtle flippers to make machines that go through sand better. So they're copying nature's design. (laughs) So they go nature's what design? Okay. okay. (laughs) So the sea turtles now they go out to sea, and all the while in their minds they're remembering where they are. They're taking uh, GPS locations of that magnetic field we talked about. Okay, I'm here. Wait, wait. A sea turtle. A sea turtle baby. Is, is
1: using the magnetic field of yes. the earth?
3: Yep, yep. In the brain, they've got yeah. these magnetite that arrange, and they remember where it is. And so they, they, they continue to go, and they find uh, their breeding ground several thousand miles away. They stay there for 8 to 50 years, and then uh, someday that they, that when they, it's ready to breed, they come back. They follow the same route, exactly, and come up on the same beach within meters of where they were born. Wow. And, and they do
1: that by using the magnetic field of
3: the Earth? It is one of the factors that they use, yes. They, they, they navigate by means of geomagnetic field. So, again,
1: the question you have to ask yourself is, how does this all come about by chance? How does, how, how, how does that happen? How can they make that trek stay there for all of those years and then come back to the exact same place that they started? And the answer, the answer with all of this is it's intelligently designed. David, we have less than a minute left. Wrap it up.
3: Well, I think that the value to this, to a Christian, to a follower of Christ, and that's what we are and that's what we're interested in, is that it gives us pushback against the materialistic, scientistic views of the world that are telling everybody there's no God. Science shows there's no God. Everything is random. There's no moral code. You're on your own. It's, this is all that it's going to be. That is untrue, and it's unscientific. We've looked at just a few of the things in here. If you go back to Rewind, we talked about constants. There's, there's about another 20 or 30 constants there in that, that the, in that uh, document. That and each
1: on. one, the probability of it happening by chance
3: is astronomically ridiculous. Yeah, they showed the difference if it wasn't just right. Here's the bottom line. Science is not anti-God. Science does show and suggest extremely, extremely strongly that there is a designer in all that we have. David, thanks so much for being with us this morning.
1: Folks, I don't know about you, but I'm sitting here saying this doesn't get better than this. And if you couldn't hear the whole broadcast uh, this morning, tomorrow evening from 8 to 10, Monday night, we will do a live podcast with David Stein on the same subject, going through it again. Go to ChristianQuestions.com, click Listen Live, and you'll be with us, folks. Understand that God had a design right from the beginning and we are living through the design so that we can see the end result of His intentions, which is the blessing of all. That's the God that we know. That's the creator of the universe. For Jonathan and Rick and David Stein, we'll be back again next week with another subject. But till then, science does show the existence of a creator, a magnificent creator. Till next week, think about it.